Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. Sarah. Hi, Peggy. Episode two, season three. Yeah, episode two, season three. And we are, as we talked about last week, centering this whole season around the divine and sort of different ways of thinking about the divine, different aspects of the divine. And last week we talked about the divine and love. And this week, I'm going to go ahead and say we're talking about the opposite and we can unpack whether or not we agree that it's the opposite. Um, but we're talking about divine punishment question of sort of how does the divine operate in terms of punishing humans for their sinful behavior so yeah big (laughs) it is really big it is really big and it has been a concern certainly of you know sort of the monotheistic traditions for a long time right millennia of sort of thinking through um and I was uh I was thinking about how in the Hebrew scriptures sort of the Christian view of the Hebrew scriptures is that God, the God of those stories is this punishing God full of retribution and wrath who destroys existence and floods and wants to like raise Sodom and Gomorrah and all this sort of like violent whatever. And then again, the Christian view is that then Jesus comes along and replaces this God that's sort of full of wrath with this God of love, right? Replaces the law with love and it everything becomes, and yet, And yet, Christianity totally retains for a very long time this notion of punishment, right? After death, punishment by God in hell. Well, I guess technically by Satan, but um, in hell. And then you get tons of like stories that grow up and, and visions of what that looks like, right? With Dante, sort of the classic vision of like retributive justice in, in these layers of hell. Um, And so we're, yeah, we're going to just talk about that. We're going to talk about what is God's role in punishment and how does that impact how we punish here on earth? Yeah, and these things are so related, right? I mean, what we believe happens to us after death and then how we treat each other here during while we're alive. And I think that our theologies of, of the afterlife really define our theologies for our behavior now. So that you and I, you know, as Unitarian Universalists, have this um, general expectation that everyone is loved and everyone is saved, and that after you die, that will be your experience—one of universal love. And so, in life, we do everything we can to include more people and to help people to feel loved and forgiven and cared for and centered. And that is the way that our our theology is made manifest. And I think that the all of the different theologies we can sort of discern by the way people treat each other while they're alive. 
I think that's right. I mean, I um, we were talking about this before. I think that, yes, the vision that we have of God enables our conduct in the world, right? So if we believe in a God that punishes, punishment becomes okay, right? So there's, and there's all sorts of different ways that that plays out. If we believe in a God that punishes for eternity, then we think eternal punishment, right? Death penalty or life in prison or whatever is okay. If we believe in a God that doesn't believe in rehabilitation for everyone, then we are not going to think about rehabilitation, right? So, so I actually think we should start cards on the table as Unitarian Universalists, right? That second piece universalism means what you were just describing that like in, in theory, the God that we believe in um, is a God that we believe doesn't punish. Now, I, just because I think it's fascinating, <laughs> I wanted to tell this to the world, and then we can we can sort of move out from there. But there were different kinds of universalism, right? There was ultra universalism, which literally said, the minute you die, God restores you to God's self because God is so loving and so powerful and can do that. And why wouldn't God do that? If God is a loving parent, why would God not gather you up in God's presence and, and make you whole, right? No matter who you were. And they meant it, like no matter who you were. And then there were the restorationists who were like, mm, you're going to maybe spend like 5, 10, 50, 50,000 years in hell. And then God's going to bring you back after you've like done your time, right? But even there, it's really interesting to think about how that plays out, right? So if you're a restorationist, you can totally see how that could map onto like a, a legal system, a jail system, right? A prison system of you do your time and then you get wrapped back up into the love and into the care of society, right? You could, you could also see an ultra universalist being like, there no prisons, right? Like, let's just, let's only focus on rehabilitation. Let's only talk about how to keep people in community restored and given the tools they need, right? And then you come to people who believe in eternal punishment in the fiery pits of hell and like it totally changes how you're willing to see the world and what you're willing to do to each other in it. I think it's so much easier for us to believe in some kind of purgatory in some in-between space because because it means that there's the chance for everyone right that there's there's this sense of we love justice right we we want to believe that people who are truly horrible will pay and not that you know not the prodigal son will not show up again and be loved and forgiven and given everything right off the bat we want some kind of justice and we we understand ourselves to be imperfect so we also want to know that while we would like justice for other people we would like a little less justice for ourselves and we'd like to know that we will be loved forever so there's i think that we created this in between i mean i know why it was created historically but but aside from that we have adopted this purgatory experience because it makes us feel better Right? It's not an all or nothing. We don't have to choose. And the universalists fell into that. So on the one hand, they were inspired by this idea that everyone is saved and that changed everything. And then, you know, there's this sense of like, well, you know, but what about, you know, what about Hitler? <laughs> what about Hitler? Right? <laughs> right. I mean, that's always the argument. What about Hitler? And then you go, well, you know, he'll have to take some time to come into himself and be restored to his full glory. And it could take, right, the universalists ultimately were like 50,000 years. But, 
but there is this like desire for a system like that. Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because then we get into the sort of psychology of humans and our need, like our, our sort of compulsion to judgment and to like, because I think, and I am like, this is like a new thought that's occurring to me as we speak. But I think that part of that fundamentally comes out of a, a, a sort of innate deep sense of questioning our own worth, right? In other words, if I actually felt 100% sure that I was loved no matter what, it would not inspire me to be bad in the world. That's not the impact it has, right? Like being loved doesn't make us do bad things. That's not how it works. If you have children, you know this, right? But if I was actually convinced of my own belovedness and everyone else's own belovedness, I'm not sure that we would feel that deep need for like justice and judgment and punishment for others, right? I don't know. Maybe that's wrong. I just, I don't, when I was young, <laughs> like I could hold a grudge. I am an Italian, like we, like we would not believe, right? And I don't know what changed. I don't, I don't know if it was processed towards ministry. I don't know, right? But I don't anymore <laughs> rejoice in the idea of other people's punishment. Honestly, in some ways, no matter what they've done. Um, not that I don't think punishment isn't useful and important, right? Like there should be consequences for actions. Maybe that's the point. Maybe there's a difference between punishment and consequence, right? Like punishment feels emotionally driven, like the sort of retribution question and consequence feels like you did a thing and you have to pay the price for that thing that you did. And it's going to be determined by your peers and by your context but that that's somehow different. So it's really almost a motivational thing. Like, yeah. is the cons because if the consequence is human made, then the consequence is, is, is it motivated by a sense of you need to account for what you did or is it motivated by a desire for revenge? Yeah. And I think we see that playing out in, you know, in our political system, in our, you know, all over the place. So, okay, so I'm like taking us down a thread I didn't even realize I was gonna take us down, but I, I wanna like map punishment and like the distinction between punishment and consequence onto the distinction between shame and guilt, and then onto the distinction between like sinful or beloved, right? So, so if I line those up, punishment is a thing you get because you are fundamentally sinful and need to feel like shame about who you are. Consequences are a thing you get when you've done a bad thing, but you are loved enough for boundaries to be set. And you can totally tell this is like a parenting thing too, right? That like, because there is such a difference when you think about old, you know, Amy, our producer was talking about like sort of old fashioned punishments, right? Of like shunning, which still exist in lots of religious communities today, right? Shunning or public shaming. Those are about like, tearing down a person's like fundamental self, right? Like shaming them for who they are, not having them like do what needs to be done to make good on what bad thing, right? So like it's in, there's a lot more wrapped up in this than I even realized. <laughs> well, and there's also for me, this sense of where does redemption come in? I, 
at what point at what point do we do we forgive or at what point is somebody has someone accounted for their behavior well enough that the rest of us feel that we are back in right relationship and, and this question of self-worth i mean you're, you're sort of opening up for me all these questions about how much we project our own self-worth onto other people and how much we live um, with our own shame and then project our shame and then require other people to pay for our shame. I mean, right, there's, this is this is a rabbit hole. <laughs> it is, but it's a really fascinating one, right? And it, but, it, but it all comes back to how you view God, right? So in other words, if I view God, as like a loving parent, right? This is the universalist, right? God is the loving parent of all existence. Then that parent is, is not going to deny our redemption, right? Is not going to, you know, a, a, the loving parent is not gonna shun us for all eternity. Um, and so that question of redemption, well, and I, we also get, you know, universalists would have said, there's nothing to be redeemed from in a way, right? Like that humans are not fundamentally evil and flawed and, and don't need the kind of redemption that Catholicism would have said they needed, right? Or Orthodox Christianity. Um, well, not, not from original sin, right? Not, not yeah. fundamentally, but certainly in terms of our behavior, yeah. that our behavior requires accountability. Yeah, but again, we come back to this question of accountability versus punishment. And, and I think that part of that is what is the outcome, right? If we're punishing in order to deter behavior, right, that's like one thing. If we're punishing in order to create a lasting marker of difference between the evil and the good, that's another thing. If we're punishing or offering consequences in order to rehabilitate, that's another thing, right? And in fairness, you know, our, our sort of American Western model is, is one that mimics the, I think, is one that mimics most closely a vision of God that is retributive, shaming, isolating, disconnecting, as opposed to a vision of God that is a sort of loving attempt to redeem and bring back, right? So if, if we believe that God loves us irreversibly and absolutely <clears throat> does that love alter behavior like in other words if i have a child who right i completely love my child don't want to see my child punished and yet every once in a while will do something you shouldn't do and there has to be a consequence for that if but it's easy for me to love him does my loving him then change the next time? I mean, my experience so far with raising a child is yes, right? That, that we are in this love relationship. And actually, when he realizes that something wasn't okay, he doesn't do it the next time. Right? That love does actually change. It did alter the behavior. So is it, are we suggesting that people would behave differently if they believed that they were universally irreversibly loved 
would would we have a very different society if we were to let go of the entire idea really of hell and divine retribution yes <laughs> my short answer is yes no i really do think so and and look obviously everybody having some deep and abiding sense of their own belovedness is not going to like end um you know poverty and oppression except maybe it would right? Like, because once you have some deep and abiding sense of your own belovedness, you, the, the need for comp like competition goes away. I have a, I have a relative um, who I once heard essentially say, like, I hope that, you know, this other relative of ours doesn't use up all their love on this set of children, because I want my children to be loved, as if love were like a limited resource and we had to compete for it, right? As if there was some fundamental way and only some amount of us could be okay and everyone else has to be bad. And if you can push, and, and I think it's natural human sort of tribal scarcity, whatever mentality, but if you can, if all of us could push past that into a place where like love wasn't a finite resource and shame was not something we felt inherently, right? And and a sense of belonging was all of ours, right? All of a sudden you don't, all the stuff, all the money, all the, I don't know, it, I feel <laughs> maybe naively, I feel like it would actually improve human interaction and human existence if people could live out of that place. That said, it's really, really hard. Um, it's really hard to, to know that you are loved and really feel that actively all the time. And it's really hard to feel that about other people, right? It's really easy to feel that sort of self-righteous justice judgment thing. I'm kind of being reminded of um, the balance between justice and mercy. So as, as someone who has supervised people and has been supervised by other people, I, I remember a long time ago, um, having a boss and and saying to someone he chooses mercy over justice and I don't know if I like it because someone in the office was behaving really inappropriately and I was like you know there has to be like you have to say this isn't okay and instead he was being really gentle and kind about the whole thing but it has defined for me so many relationships like recognizing that in him and in that moment and then moving forward and trying to find this balance and I think that we all you know we all want to receive mercy and we all want to witness justice and there's a way in which we have to extend ourselves if we want if we want to receive mercy we also have to extend mercy and we have to be willing to recognize that all people are redeemable and that every situation that we are in every case can be moved toward the more loving response that we can be embraced by a love that that can transform us that we are in fact currently embraced by a love trying to transform us i love this um this question about justice and mercy so and, and I think you're right. I think for most people, we want mercy for ourselves and justice for others. And, and again, I mean, I, I have to confess, I don't, I don't feel that strongly at the moment. However, here's when it gets activated. 
<laughs> be really honest. It gets activated when mercy is applied to white men and to no one else. That like gets my blood going, right? Like, because I think that's, that's part of it too. And so maybe it's kind of a chicken and egg situation, right? Where like, it would be easy to sort of err on the side of mercy if mercy was equally applied, if mercy was extended to all, right? If mercy was the way that we live, right? But the way that we live is actually hard as justice on people of color, on women, right? Like that we live in a totally um, unfair and oppressive vision of justice versus mercy. Um, I'm not sure I would even call that justice though. I mean, I think that we live in a system in a really broken and oppressive system and, and that and I guess in moments of like someone gets pulled over, I mean, how many times has this happened, right? A black man is killed and how many white people go to, well, but he was doing X and he was selling loose cigarettes and he'd been a criminal for, you know, he was arrested 10 years before, but right, so that suddenly justice becomes you know, necessary and, and violent and karma is um, inevitable in some horrific way. Whereas if a white person does exactly the same thing, then, then it's all about mercy. Then like, then what, you know, and it was a white woman. I mean, then what was she doing? She was selling some loose cigarettes to feed her kids. You know, of course we have mercy. So I want to tell you a story and in my mind it fits. So like, <laughs> give me a second to sort of, so I, when I was in grad school doing my, um, my divinity degree, I had a good friend who had grown up extremely like speaking in tongues, fundamentalist Christian, right? Like I think snakes may have even been involved on occasion, right? Like I'm not, I'm not joking, like very seriously. And, um, I was visiting with her and her fiance once and we, I asked them, I was like, I don't like, how do you understand um, LGBTQ and, and, and punishment and God and all of this. And the fiance was like, going to hell, full stop, no questions, that's it. And my friend was like, I don't presume to know what God, and this was a friend who had loads of LGBTQ friends, right? Like, which is the fascinating mental gymnastics that people do, right? Um, but her answer was, I don't presume to know God's will, right? I don't presume to, so, so I, I'm agnostic, which I object to, frankly, but in her case, she was agnostic to, to sort of the question of what God was going to do with LGBTQ folks, right? Now I raise this because I think what it illustrates for me is that she had an understanding of the human limitations, right? Which is part of what, what you're pointing to is that it's not justice, it's a misapplication of justice because of human limitations and a human like development and commitment to an oppressive racist system, right? Like in other words, I'm wondering like, what would it look like if everyone was just like, it's not ours to decide. It would probably be worse too, I don't know. But like, in other words, when we're thinking about divine punishment, if we were like, it's God's to punish, not ours, what impact would that have, right? Because that, I don't think that is the, the vision. Right now, the vision is like, exactly, I'm, I am the hand of God, like acting on earth, doing God's will and punishing you, you know, abortion clinic people or you black men for selling cigarettes or whatever, right? Like, I don't know. Well, it's how you justify 
the death penalty, like, right, that we are acting on behalf of God. So I think that there's, I think that that would be a step up for a lot of people to say, it's not mine to judge and not, you know, this is, this is for God and I'm letting this go. Um, and in, so for, that's an improvement. I would hope that we could go further than that, further than that and start talking about, like, actually I fully embrace you because you are a child of God, because you are so fully and completely loved, I embrace and welcome you and will make room for you in my life, in my, my church, my workplace, my in society, that you belong fully and completely for who you are. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's where it comes back to, this is why I think it was important to sort of think about divine and love and divine and punishment kind of like together because I just, I don't think you can separate out how you understand God's love and how you understand God's boundaries or punishment, right? Um, and that's, for me, that's sort of, a, again, out of parenting, right? This is the distinction between like punishment and boundaries, because nobody thrives on total chaos, right? So we, it, it wouldn't make sense to have a society where literally anything could happen and nobody said or did anything about it, right? There have to be structures and systems, but they don't have to be structures and systems that cause a lifetime of separation, right, or a lifetime of disconnection from the rest of society. Um, and that's where, like, oh, go ahead. Well, I just think, right, there's, I agree, there's no way to separate divine love and divine punishment. Uh, thinking about this, experiences I have had of forgiving people and there is something around, you know, like not being able to deny love. <clears throat> Think about this woman. And I, this woman was a, one of my closest friends. And then she, she and my boyfriend then started sleeping together. And so I lost my boyfriend and my best friend. And I hated, hated passionately this woman. And I, I, he and I ended up sort of okay, but she and I, not at all. So I was invited to this thing where she was speaking and God, I was dreading it, but I had no way to not go. So I go and I'm sitting in the front row and now she gets up, right? And I'm like, I did not want to see her being beautiful, looking fabulous, having everyone sort of adoring her. And just, I was like, oh, I can't believe I've said this. She gets up and she um, leans. Well, as she starts walking, I, I remember how much she hated public speaking and realized, I and mean, I could feel her anxiety as she moved past me. And I was in the front row, of course. And then she leans on, a, on this blackboard that was on wheels and it shot out from under her. And, and the look on her face and all I could feel for her was love, overwhelming love. I just thought, oh my God, I, it was beyond thought. It was really like just this feeling for her while other people were laughing at her and there's something about like when you tap into that love the the anger and the hate just go away when I think of God as being grounded in that love that God is that God exists entirely of that then redemption forgiveness mercy make complete sense to me I can't really imagine anything else yeah that the rest of it feels like just a system we create when right. we get angry right right and i i for me 
again, that comes back to human limitation, right? That, that I refuse to put my vision of God into the boxes that humans fit, right? In other words, I, perhaps I am not able to forgive super easily or, or to live in that love all the time, but sure as heck, you better believe God could, right? So like that, I think that um, understanding that at the same time that we embody the holy and we participate in the holy and that we are ourselves divine in some sense, that there's something beyond us. And it's, you know, we talked last week about that feeling that you sometimes get, right? When you look for it and you try that feeling of just like, it is all one and we're all sort of of a piece. And, and that, if, if that feeling is what God is, right? This is what I tell my children God is. If that's what God is, right? The feeling like when you're being held by your mom and you just feel really safe or whatever, then all of a sudden everything changes um, and our aspirations change, right? The challenge for us, I think, the massive spiritual challenge is dismantling the systems that, that benefit justice over mercy and that prioritize retribution and punishment over love. Yeah. And that is, it seems like that's the work of, of our church is the, I think it's the religious work of our time. Yes. Yeah. So let's get to work. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's like oh, you first. It's so big. It's so big. No, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. You center the love, the rehabilitation, the forgiveness. Yeah. It's easy to say. But yes. <laughs> but yes. So we're coming we're coming to the end of our time this has been a really good conversation we're gonna have a great season we've got like to keep talking about what god is and who god is and how we experience and manifest that in the world this is good work i'm excited <laughs> all right see you next week see you soon